Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, is, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work For Him Zone. I hope you're never the same. In our never-ending I Work For Him desire to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways that will challenge the way you think about your faith and work, today, we're going to shift your mind and help you understand what poverty is all about and how you as a Christian business person, whether you own a business, lead a business, or work in a business, can make a difference. But we're going to talk about it from the reference point of Christians and their perspective on the minimum wage. And we've got a repeat guest with us, Dr. Ann Bradley, Vice President of Economic Initiatives with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. Dr. Ann Bradley, welcome back to the I Work For Him show. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Excuse my voice. Oh, you know, you know, your voice, if you weren't always out cheerleading all the time with those kids, maybe you'd have a voice. Yeah, that's what it is. I might have one. You're right. I might. So, but you're up in Virginia, right? Is that where you're at? Yeah. So the allergies just really got you up there. Is that what it was? You could blame it on the trees. Yeah, I think we can blame it on the trees. Okay. That sounds fair. Yeah, but you got cherry trees this time of year. That's pretty cool, and you get cherry trees up that we way. We do. We do, and pear trees, and yeah, it's nice. Hey, I got a verse of scripture that I want to center our conversation around today. Romans 4.4. 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Today, you wrote an article. You wrote an article back on April, or excuse me, February the 17th, and I stopped you and I, I emailed you right away. I'm like, and this, this article is fantastic. We've got to talk about this article. And your article was titled, An Economist Answer to a Pastor's Question About the Minimum Wage. 
I, I just thought that was great because a lot of pastors really could use some economic perspective. And that was just a fantastic article. It could have been a lot longer, a lot more stuff, but you kept it nice and simple and sweet. But let's just talk really briefly about the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. You're the Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. What is the Institute, and what is your focus? Sure. So our Institute is really um, here to, to educate Christians on these ideas that you know, we tend to silo faith and work and then economics. I mean, some people don't even think that matters to their daily lives. And we believe that that's caused a problem in the church, that people, you know, if you survey a lot of people, they say, I hate my job, and Christians would say the same thing. And it's because we do we do our jobs a lot of times for the wrong reasons. So our premise is that we were created to work. We are made in the image of God. Our job here, if you go to Genesis, is to... Um, to work the garden and to take care of it. And and there's a lot of responsibility in that, and God in His infinite wisdom created us each uniquely. We have a job to do. Some of us will get paid for those jobs, and some won't. If you're raising kids at home, you're still contributing to the to God's creation in a very powerful way. And so we want people to really get serious about what God has created them to do, because we think that in that is how you really personally flourish and how you create flourishing for others. Um, and then economics helps us understand what kind of society do we need to live in so that we're all able to unleash our gifts on the planet, because that's our job. Mm, it is our job. And just like I was, uh, Andrea was giving me a hard time, got a little fired up in that intro, but I- I'm just, I'm starting to see the result of some Christ followers bringing the church to their workplaces. And it's amazing when you, when you, when you meld between, as you said, we got to be the anti-silo. We got to stop siloing our faith and our work and, and anti-silo it. And we need to become the harvest stone in the workplace. You know what a harvest stone silo is, Ann? Yep. You do? Those are the blue ones. Oh, you don't see now in Virginia where you are, they don't have harvest stone silos. See, in the in rural the no. United States, they got two kinds of silos: the old cement kind that are circles with bands around them, and then you get the blue ones with the white top, and they're the most expensive. But the stuff, you're, the food inside doesn't rot. It's 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 perfectly designed, but they're super wicked expensive. And so when the farmer pays it off, he gets a sticker of a United States flag to put on the top. That's how you know it's paid for. But th- that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get everybody in the same place. And, and really, we got to just break the church up from the buildings and spread it out in the community and, and make that difference because the, everything about our faith applies to everything about our world. It, it's just amazing. Exactly. All right, so yep, it's it's so powerful. It is hard. It is very very powerful. So tell me today, how's Christ making a difference in your life today? It's such a, it's such a great question. Thank you for even asking me. Uh, you know, it's so it's so funny when I look at what I do, and when we think about the mundane things we do, and some I'm not so good at, as probably as everyone, you know, answering emails and following projects and. You know, doing all these things that we do in our work lives, and for me that extends to my family life. I have two small children. It's very clear to me that I would never have predicted that I was to be here in this moment with you right now as part of what I do. But it's very clear to me that God understands that. And so what we're supposed to do, what really helped me is to know that God is sovereign over all of this, and He knows His plans that He has for me, as Jeremiah tells us. And when we allow him to direct us, 
we're really going to flourish. And, you know, I've certainly in my career have taken the wrong jobs before for the wrong reasons. And, you know, they say, God bless the broken road, (laughs) right? So there's Mm -hmm. a broken road probably for all of us. But I'm absolutely in a place where I understand that God has given me these kind of strange gifts, right? I'm an economist. I mean, not that many people aspire to do that, (laughs) but um, he's using me and it's exciting to see that. And I think we all, um, there's some part of us that wants the glory, you know, we want to um, get attention or maybe fame or maybe money. And when we can put those things aside, those are things of the world and know that God is using the janitors. God is using the the waitresses and the baristas and the mechanics to contribute to eternal flourishing. Mm -hmm. If we can really believe that, it is absolutely the most thrilling thing of my life to know that. It's just every, all the other worries go away because you know, you're in the moment God created for you. It's exciting. It is, and it's exciting when you talk about it. And, and really, a lot of people think, well, an economist, wow, talk about it, a sleeper, but wow. When talk you, about boring. But yeah. when you look at the intricacies of our economy, you can see the hand of the Lord in every bit of it, because it couldn't be as complex as it is without God. And and it's and it's just as the right. complexity in our bodies and the complexities in the universe, the economy's been complex forever. It's just that we now have it on computers and we made it even more complex. But where did man get the idea for computers in the first place? So it, it's it's cool. I love the fact that you studied all, all, all day long. And I can read your books instead of having to study it all day long. I like that better. So, so why, it, because I love the economy, but I'd like to do other things too. So tell me why you wrote this book. Why did this pastor, what was this pastor's question about the minimum wage and and why did you then write it as an article as a, as a tiff we or an if we a blog what 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 prompted all this what was the question yeah. that the pastor asked such a great question and we wrote this book about a year ago and we've been out on the road kind of talking about it and i was in um of all places idaho i've never been there before so that was kind of cool too and during the day, I got to go to a pastor's luncheon and talk about my chapter in the book of poverty, which my chapter particularly relates to income inequality, and kind of asking the question whether income inequality is a sign of poverty to come, or is it a sign that the rich are exploiting the poor? So that's kind of what my presentation was about. But I, in the presentation, I said, we have to start with the Scripture. There's no economics without the Scripture. There's no physics without, you know, there's nothing without the Scripture. And And so I said, you know, we were made in God's image, and it is because of that, it's because of our creation that we have dignity. And so then I began to kind of tell this story of how we think about that in these instances of income inequality. So I kind of do my thing, and it's the Q&A time, and and, a pastor raises his hand, and he says, I've been wrestling with this for 10 years. You started this talk by saying that dignity is the key. We are all we have we all have dignity because of our creator. How can we then not support a minimum wage? It seems very undignifying to earn less than seven fifty an hour. So for him, he couldn't not support the minimum wage because anything less than that it robs people of their dignity because they can't afford goods and services that they need to survive. And I think that's a good question. Hmm. Um, and, and that's why I wrote the blog post. It was based on this question that he had been, it was earnestly wrestling with. Yeah, and it is, and it, you know, there's there's a lot of furor about it across the nation because people don't understand 
the intricacies of an economy. They don't understand the minimum wage and where it even came from. They just have, most people today have grown up always knowing of a minimum wage. You know, certainly I'm almost right. 50. There's always been a minimum wage. You know, when I was a kid, minimum wage was a buck and a quarter. When I got out of high school, it was three and a quarter. And, and I always realized, you know what? I could work for three and a quarter at McDonald's like my friends. Or I had a couple of them working at Perkins and then they told me about that. I'm like, I'm never working at Perkins. And, and then I, and then I, but I said, boy, but if I'm willing to do manual labor, like I could dig ditches, I dig, I dug for my high school computer teacher. He built four season porches in the summertime. So I dug his foundations. I did, I just basically did what I would call slave labor, but I made five bucks an hour. So I made like 70% more than my friends because I was willing to do I was willing to do the kind of stuff that other people didn't want to do. So I was willing to make more than minimum wage because I was willing to work harder. And it was people always like, well, but you have to work so much harder. So th- that, that argument about the minimum wage has been around for a very, very long time. So what do you mean when you say lifting up the dignity of the individual? I mean, how does that? I mean, I never thought about dignity, dignity having to do with money. I mean, a lot of times dignity is how people carry themselves, I, would, I, I thought. But when you, you mentioned in the article that talking about the lifting up of the dignity of the individual, what does is, what is raising the minimum wage have to do with that? Well, so I, I and that's the question that I'm asking. Does minimum wage, you know, do increases in the minimum wage actually lead to more dignity? So that's the question. And I think the first thing that we all have to be very clear on is that our dignity is not determined by our income. It, it's not. And so that was kind of my first response in, in this Q&A time was our dignity is not defined by our bank account. Our dignity only comes from our creator. It is because God created us in his likeness that we have dignity. That's where it, that's it. And Christians know this. I mean, we know that that's where we get our creativity. We're, you know, imago dei is the language we use, made in the image of Christ, uh, made in the image of God, excuse me. So these things are who, make us who we are. That's, they're part of our humanness. Um, that said, if you also look at the language of Genesis, you understand what we were born into before sin, and that was a world of abundance. I mean, if you read the language of Genesis, it says that the skies were full of birds and the, the rivers were teeming with fish and it was lush. There was a lot of stuff and a lot of more than what we needed, which makes, you know, the choice of Adam and Eve all the more kind of curious, but it's sin, right? So that's the problem is that sin, there's a brokenness now that's entered into the world, but the job description that we have hasn't changed. We're here to work the garden and to take care of it. We're here to contribute to flourishing, so we have a purpose, and we're here to make the creation more than it was when we were born into it. So the theologian that I work with says it nicely. He says, God's garden was perfect but unfinished. In his perfect wisdom. He created a garden that had everything that we needed, for example, to create cell phones, to create smartphones even. So everything <laughs> I really there, thought, and come on, seriously, power. I'm going to stop there for a second. Do you really think the smartphone was a design of God or from the enemy? Because I don't know about you, but it feels like the biggest ball and chain I've ever had in my entire life. I think it's actually an act of the enemy. Seriously, when you think about it. 
Well, here's the thing. What I and this is where the global market, this this notion of the the how all of these technologies work together becomes really important. I am I am with you. I understand and absolutely resonate with what you're I saying. I was just trying to be funny, you, and you know, and you're with your no, with your you know hoarse voice today. You didn't catch the humor in that. I just seriously. I, I know. I'm being okay. too serious. You're too but serious. No, you can be a ch- you can be a chain to it. You can. I think it could be an idol, and I think we have to struggle with that. So, or, you know, we have to get our priorities straight. But I do think that every modern convenience that we have that makes our lives easier and better, we had the ability from the beginning to make that. I mean, it, we had to apply human ingenuity to the creation. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, so the question is, does minimum wage help that? It's time for our book highlight segment brought to you by Karis Christian Books and Gifts. The book is called For the Least of These, A Biblical Answer to Poverty, brought to you by the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, and edited by yours truly, Dr. Ann Bradley. Let me give you a short explanation. While much progress has been made towards poverty alleviation, many well-intentioned efforts have led Christians to actions that are only ineffective, that are not only ineffective, but leave the most vulnerable in a worse situation than before. Is there a better answer? Yes, that's why they wrote this book. Combining biblical exegesis, exegesis, I can't even say that word. That's why it's just combining biblicals, all kinds of, uh, I can't, what's the definition for exegesis, And Exegesis? It, literal uh, interpretation of the scriptures. Wow, why so did, line by line. Okay, so combining that with proven economic principles, for the least of these, a biblical answer to poverty equips Christians with both a solid biblical and economic understanding for, on how best to care for the poor and foster sustainable economic development. I know what I just said doesn't sound very interesting, but I have read the first couple of chapters of this book because I just got it this week. This is really interesting, and it's something you and your pastor and your church board need to read because we need to pull together as churches across America and fight poverty with the power of God instead of giving people food. I mean, there's just so much more to it. We need to start interrupting our culture with Jesus in, in every in every fashion. So call into the studio line now to get this one book. It's all I got is one to give away today. 855-265-2929. 855-265-2929. And you need to remember, you got to read this book. Hollywood is probably not going to make this movie. All right, we're back live with Dr. Ann Bradley with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. We're talking about Christians and the minimum wage. And right before the break, we were talking about dignity and that we need to lift up the, the dignity of the individual. And, and some people were saying that's tied to the minimum wage. But yet you were saying that really our dignity is not supposed to come from our status of living, but from our Heavenly Father. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Because I think once you tie it to anything else, then it's negotiable. It can be devalued. Mm. Um, and so this is kind of inalienable, our dignity, in that we it is, it is born into who we are. We are precious creatures of God, and we're here to do a job. Now, all that said, we don't want people to live in poverty. Again, if you kind of go back to what I said before about thinking through the language of Genesis, what are we here to do? We weren't here to to, you know, before the fall, we weren't here to suffer and to be broken and to be poor and not to be able to eat and not to be able to get medical care. There was never the intention for any of that. But I would argue to you that even though sin entered the world through our own fault, our job description is still the same, and we are to bring about flourishing. So the question is, 
how do we do it? And I would say to you that minimum wage can hurt more than it helps. Dr. Ann Bradley is suffering from a little laryngitis and a sore throat, but we're so grateful she's stuck with us today because what she brings to the table has been brought to the table by nobody else uh, on the I Work For Him show. She brings a unique Christ perspective on the economy, and it is fabulous. The last time we were on the air, we talked about that inequality, the biblical perspective on income inequality. It was a great show, and now I've seen you written a whole chapter in a book about it. Today we're talking about the answer to a pastor's question on raising the minimum wage. So let's just talk about some of the basic economics behind it. Most people think, just think, hey, to solve the the poverty, all we got to do is raise minimum wages. But that won't work, will it? It generally does not work. And and the kind of the evidence shows us that it works for a few, but it tends to harm the, the, the worst off. So let me kind of explain that a little bit. You know, the idea is that, say, you have kind of a dishwasher or um, somebody that's a lower-skilled, lower-educated member of the workforce, and they work at McDonald's or fast food place or something like this. And, you know, maybe um, without the minimum wage, they would be paid $5 an hour, but with the minimum wage, as it currently stands, we're suggesting they would be paid seven fifty an hour. And so the idea is a good one. It's that, hey, people that live on $5 an hour even at 40 hours a week, can't provide them for themselves very well. They have to make really hard trade-offs, like, do I get a new tire or do I take my child to the doctor? And that is not trite at all. We, those are hard decisions that many people face. And so the question is, does minimum wage alleviate those decisions and those trade-offs? And we really ultimately want those trade-offs to go away. You can get the tire and the Tamiflu, you know, when you're sick. So that's what flourishing is about. And the question is, does the minimum wage get us in that direction? And really what we see is that what you tend to do with the minimum wage is you are artificially raising a wage. So you're artificially, well, you're in real terms raising the production cost. So for the person who runs the McDonald's, it just got more expensive to do business. And so the incentive of these business owners is to actually retain people that bring $7.50 of value to the table in terms of their skills. And what we see then is the least skilled people, the people that hover around $5 an hour in terms of their skill sets and experience, get become unemployed. And so it's a kind of story that has the exact opposite result from the desired intention. And we can't do that. That is inherently undignifying. You don't want to take someone who had a job. It's not the best job in the world. But you don't want them to become unemployed because of your policy. Now you've just created a bigger problem. And the other side of this is that minimum wage tends to raise prices of goods and services. Because, again, what we've said is instead of seven $5 an hour to wash dishes, which needs to be done, we are paying seven fifty. This is a huge increase. And so that is going to parlay itself into increased prices of hamburgers or, you know, milkshakes or whatever we're talking about. And so that tends to hurt the poor the hardest because the poor can't withstand a price increase in the same way the rich can. So it's kind of a double whammy. Not only are the poor, the you know, the lowest skilled people, the very people we care about the most, getting cut out in many cases of the job market. But now we're raising prices on them. What we're seeing in Seattle right now, there's, you know, today, yesterday, April 1st, um, minimum wage, $15 in Seattle. And businesses started closing their doors before that minimum wage even hit. 
And some economists did some research, and they found that if you increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour for an average restaurant, you're going to increase their labor costs by 47 to 49%. That's oh, huge. That is huge. A, a hu- huge. It is monstrous. So it's monstrous. And these business owners, I mean, we're not talking about necessarily always large franchises. We're talking about small little businesses. They can't afford it. And so they're just closing shops. So that's a triple whammy because we have people getting fired. We have raised increased prices. Now we have some stores that are closing, which means consumers have fewer options. So you've just kind of devastated the very population you're saying you want to help. And so this was my response to the pastor is we can't just want to do good. We have to accomplish good. I think we can vote for minimum wage increases and lay our head on our pillow and feel like we've done something good. But unless we unpack the economics, we're not going to actually get the have the full picture, which is that we're doing harm. Well, and I think I mean, that, so. What we're really well, I was sorry, just, I was just going to say. I, I mean, I, that lesson that you just taught is a lesson that we all need to learn. And it's it you can't fix. I mean, that's what a lot of let's just say middle class and upper middle class and and super duper class in America think that they can fix this problem with money. Even in the church, they think they can fix this problem with money, but it's so much more. And you can't, you know, all you've got to, in order to get a good perspective, every Christ follower in the United States needs to go to a third world country in order to get a good perspective on what the reality of poverty is in the world in 95% of the world that's not here. That gives you perspective on appreciating what you have. It also gives you an idea on, okay, here these people in third world are content with having two pairs of clothes and making $3 a day, but there's no dignity degrading. They're, they're not degrading their dignity. They're proud to make that. I'm not saying we need to do that in the United States. What I'm saying is that we need to, we need to help people get not we we can't it's like i had a guy on a couple of weeks ago from cheetah development out of minnesota from hastings minnesota and they you know they don't teach people they, they don't feed people fish they don't teach them to fish they teach them how to sell the fish so that they can feed themselves and a hundred people for a lifetime and they actually go into villages all across africa and they get investors and they actually create infrastructure using local people in order to alleviate the poverty, because they said for six months of the year, people in Africa have food. And for six months of the year, people in Africa are starving to death because their food goes rotten and there's no rain. So that's that third world poverty. But in the United States, poverty it gets exasperated every time the government seems to get involved. I mean, look at the Obamacare. They said, OK, here's the deal. Everybody's going to have health care. And, you know, so if somebody's working 40 hours a week, you got or 29 hours or more a week, you got to give them health care. So what do people do? They cut those people that work at 40 hours a week down to 28 hours, and now not only do they have 12 hours less a week to work, they don't have health care. It doesn't work. You can't mandate that kind of change. Why, why does, how, what do we need to do to help the church understand how we can make change? Let's take the conversation from being Dr. Jim negative, because I get so frustrated with politics, and talk about how can the church really make a difference? What, what can we do to solve this issue? Well, I think the first thing we have to do, and of course this is my bias as an economist, but I think we have to understand the economic realities of the world we live in. And the minimum wage story was was just one. There's no big pot of money from which we can instantly pull and make people more wealthy. That's not how it works. If we could do that, the Congo wouldn't be poor. They'd be rich. And so there's a path to economic development. There's a path to prosperity. 
And I think the church has a role in it in, in a couple of ways. But one is, you know, the church has a lot of power. First and foremost, we have the gospel and we have the transformative power of Christ. And no matter how rich we get, and we're, let me tell you, we're rich. And I, you know, I'm a little professor at a think tank. So I'm not in the top 1% of the income distribution, but in real terms, we are rich. We have cell phones and TVs and cars and all the stuff that most of humans who have ever walked the planet have never had. So in real terms, we're wealthy, but we're wealthy, but you know, we have a spiritual warfare situation that you've mentioned several times, and so there'll always be spiritual poverty. So the church is the only one poised to deal with that. But I do think that the church is also poised to deal with material assistance, and, and this is how. One is the church understands where people, from where they get their dignity. That's first and foremost. And the second thing is the church is local. So the church is more likely to be able to reach out into the community and get to know the people they're supposed to help. This is one thing that no matter how well-intentioned a large federal bureaucracy, no matter how good the people are that work there, they can't do it. Because the federal bureaucracy can only help generic people, right? They can only make a generic prototype of a human and say, this is what people need, and give them that. Now let's think about what the reality is. You're going to have some people in a community who are drug addicts and they're homeless. And then you might have some people who are displaced because they've lost a job. Those are two unique individuals that need unique help and support. And I suspect the drug addict needs a long-term, you know, uh, intervention and and rehabilitation. Somebody who's displaced by a hurricane might, uh, you know, have short-term poverty. They don't need the same kind of help. So we have to go to the model of Jesus, which is he treats each of us as the unique individuals we are, and the church can do that. The federal government, no matter how well-intentioned, can't. They're just incapable of treating anything other than a generic human being, and there is no generic human being. Well, and that, we have a lot of power. That has been proven. The government can't solve this problem, because how many years has welfare been in place? It hasn't solved the problem. Poverty today in the United States is so much worse than it was 50 years ago when welfare was instituted, or 60 or 70 years, whenever it was. I mean, it, it didn't. The government programs to help the poor have not done anything to help the poor. All they've done is kept the poor right where they're at. I mean, isn't that yeah, true? And, and it's true. I mean, generally, the figures are you know, we've just entered the 51st year of the war on poverty, as declared by Johnson. Okay. And we've spent trillions of dollars, and the poverty rate. Um, was about 15% when, um, excuse me, 18% um, at that time, and about 15% now. So it's like almost no movement, but trillions of dollars that have to come from somewhere. So those, you know, that's an expensive proposition. And the other issue is that it's inherently undignifying as a Christian to see people that become um, dependent on the relief that's supposed to set them free. And again, this is where the Church has power. We're supposed to help people understand who God created them to be, and the ultimate dignity is letting them spread their wings and fly the way God wanted them to. And, And really what we see with welfare is that it holds people in welfare, in the chains of that. It's slavery in some regards. I mean, I, I take it that seriously because it becomes attractive to do that versus being, you know, creative, working, productive. And, and as Christians, we can't do that. It strips people of their dignity. We can't support it. 
Right. Well, I think one of the big things that you didn't mention, and, and you know, I'm only 48, so maybe I don't know the, the true facts behind this, and I know you're probably younger than I am. So when, when you look at 51 years on the war on poverty, when they started instituting those programs, the church started saying, well, the government's taking care of it. We don't have to do it anymore. And the church has lost its footing by letting the government take the place of where the church should have been going. The church has lost its footing in our culture. And it's and to me, when you look at the split in our culture, it's related to this war on poverty because the church should have been fighting the war, and instead we let our government fight the war. And by letting the government fight the war, we've lost so many battles for our culture by doing that because the church took a back step or backstage to the government. Yeah, I think there's a kind of multifaceted uh, phenomenon going on there, which is that that's true to some extent, but it's also true that the church can't compete. I mean, you know. Basically, what it's akin to, to, to live completely, to be completely dependent on welfare is akin to about $15 an hour. Um, that's hard to compete with for the church. And so it, I think it's multifaceted, the problem that we have. But I think I'm agreeing with you in that we have to take this back. I think the church is the only hope. And I think the church is the only, the only you know, brings the transformative message of the gospel um, and the government, no matter how, who's in office, it doesn't matter, can't do it. Well, and so we can't stand for it anymore. So, but let's, let's bring it back to the church as the body of Christ. Let's, let's encourage those business people. When we come back from the break, I really want to dive into Christian business people, whether the owners, managers, or the co or, or the workers in the business. What can we do? Because we've got to influence the church. The church, we've got to, we've got to reverse influence the, the body of Christ from the workplace backwards, because there's a lot of things that the, that the body of Christ within the building has lost touch with in our society today that we need to get them back in touch with. And one of them is, hey, in our businesses, there's a way we can attack poverty within our businesses. There's so many ways we can attack this by the assets, the skills, the, t- the gifts, talents, and abilities, the income that we've gotten in our businesses. So when we come back, I really want to answer that question. Can we do that? Absolutely. All right. We're finishing up our conversation with Dr. Ann Bradley, Vice President of Economic Initiatives with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. We've been talking about the minimum wage and how the church, how the body of Christ in the workplace can make a difference. And I asked you this question right before the break on how can Christian business people make an impact on poverty? What skills have we been given? What talents have we been given? What resources have we been given to fight poverty? And for the business place, I think it's a, it's it's what businesses are already doing. They're already fighting but poverty by having productive businesses that serve the needs of customers and that provide employment opportunities. I think we undersell this uh, in a bad way in our culture. I mean, the idea that, um, you know, I think Christians believe that uh, they have to justify secular activities like being a business person and, you know, say running a FedEx store or Jiffy Lube or, or whatever it is. But I, I, I think that's the wrong approach. And again, if we go back to Genesis and look at what we're asked to do, it's to use our unique skills and talents to serve people, to make the world a better place, to increase the alternatives available to people. That's how we eliminate poverty. And so when I, I an example of my own life is my cousin who opened a food truck in Washington, D.C. I mean, this doesn't take millions of dollars of capital. It took an idea for how to make grilled cheese in a truck. And, you know, he's been able to build a small business, and this provides more alternatives for people in their lunch hour, and it's affordable. And he's now 
has two trucks and he has two managers, so he's employing people. There's inherent value in that activity. There's inherent value in, you know, running a, a Jiffy Lube, for example. All these things are valuable because we're putting our skills to God's creation and we're creating more options for people. And I think we undersell that and under-evaluate it, and, and we need to stop doing that. Well, I think it really takes education, because as Christ following, as a Christ-following business owner, I never thought of me employing people as a way to fight poverty. I've never been taught that way. I've never been taught from my church how to fight poverty, except for to give money. And and now that, you know, I, right. I read this book, I had a missionary friend of mine from Costa Rica who gave me a book. He goes, Jim, you got to read this book because what you're talking about doing is not going to help. And, and it was the book called When Helping Hurts. And that was the first time I oh, understood yeah. that when you're just throwing money, sending money, it doesn't help people. You got to do so much, so many different things. And I really understood that when I stood in the docks at, at the Dominican Republic right outside uh, Santo Domingo and I watched them unloading the boats of food. They had, you know, world help going there, and it was rice. They were unloading rice in the Dominican Republic. I didn't realize they had to bring the rice in, and these people eat rice for every meal, and they're dependent on the world to supply them rice so they can eat, and yet the Dominican Republic is a luscious paradise of farmland. We just need to teach people to farm. And, and it's just, there's so much more, Anne, that we could talk about this. I'm so grateful for your time today. Would you come back sometime and talk some more about this? I would love to. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go because we're going to close out the show. And I know you just need to give your voice rest. But I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for writing this book, for editing this book, and for uh, just putting it out there. And, and I'll, I'll contact you real soon about getting up back on here again. We can have some more conversation. Just helping people. I want to give them the practical and the tactical ways to fight poverty right here in the community of Tampa Bay. So, Ann Bradley, Dr. Ann Bradley with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, thank you very much for being on the thank I Work you, For Him Jim. show. All right. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. All right. As we come to the end of another I Work For Him show, I just want to ask out, put the challenge out there. I'm looking for a thousand people to make this commitment. A thousand people to be willing to start praying for the people they work with each and every day by name. Start looking for ways to reach out to those people outside of work. Bring them into your homes. Have dinner with them. Let them be exposed to your Christ followingness in the real world outside of the office. Start looking for ways to reach out to them within the workplace and to pray with them in the workplace when you notice that they may be down or not doing so well. Start looking for ways for you to be the best and brightest absolute fan, most fantastic employee in the place because you're a Christ follower. Everything about you should be changing and everything about you should be excellent. And that's the kind of commitment I'm looking for. Don't make that commitment to Jim Brangenberg and I work for him. Make it to your Lord Jesus Christ, but sign up to be part of the I work for him nation. Just contact us on the I work for him webpage. Just go to I work the number for him.com. Hey, you can also contact me on Facebook. Although that I'm 40, almost 49. I, I struggle with Facebook notes on Facebook. Just mess with my head. You're listening to the I work for him show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower who owns my own business, but ultimately I work for him.